All right, y'all, open your Bibles or your electronic devices. Scroll to Romans 3, 27 through 31. Uh, I had a dear friend of mine. His name was, we all called him Mr. Bill. And he lived in the inner city of Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, he was my friend. Uh, we talked daily during my four years of high school up in the New England area after moving from Houston, Texas. And sometimes we talked for hours We'd sit at the lunch table, and I'd go into my free period, and i still keep talking with him. He was 60-something at the time. He was an African-American man. Uh, he was the custodian of our high school, which was a wealthy uh, suburb outside of Hartford in a town called Simsbury, Connecticut, that was founded in 1670. When we moved from Houston to Connecticut, and we're pulling into that town late at night. I was a freshman in high school. My brother, I think, was 6th grade, 7th grade. We see the sign, founded in 1670, and Pete turns to me and goes, yeah, and it still looks like it. <laughs> I mean, you had, it was like you step, you know, it was like the village. You step back into time with all that old history. When I went into campus ministry, Mr. Bill took me to his church several times to raise support. Each time I went there, I was the only white person in the whole church. Uh, he ended up supporting me on his custodian salary monthly while I was in campus ministry. Uh, what Mr. Bill, though, loved most of all was talking sports. He loved talking football, and he loved talking wrestling. He'd give a scouting report before every one of our games, and then he would give an evaluation of the opponents that we were going to wrestle. He'd go through the weight classes, and he'd pick out, Jeff, okay, your guy is this, his strengths are this. And then after matches and after games, he'd have this debrief session. It was like we were sitting down having a film study, and he'd go through exactly what happened, where things could improve. Uh, he would even go and scout teams that we were going to play or opponents that we were going to wrestle on his own time. He was legendary, and everyone in the school, or at least all the, the athletes worth their salt, knew that he knew more than our coaches. <laughs> so we were talking to him all the time. Well, we were getting ready for one of our big, it was a big game. It was a Penny High School, which is a, a town in Hartford. Uh, it was next to where Mr. Bill uh, worked and lived. And so it, we were both undefeated. We were both picked to win districts. So it was a big game. And so he actually, he went to their practices that week. Can you imagine? <laughs> I think he put on sunglasses and a big hat. Or, I had no idea what he did. Well, on Friday, now we played on Saturdays. We didn't play on Friday nights up north. You play on Saturday afternoons at 1 o'clock or 12 o'clock, somewhere around there. And he pulled me over in the hallway, and he looked very, very concerned, and he says this, Jeff, they want to hurt you. You know, I thought he was joking around, like, yeah, yeah, Mr. Bill. Everybody wants to hurt me, you know, something like that. And he's like, no, no, no they want to hurt you. I went to the practice. They have your number on the tackling dummies, your number on the blocking sleds. Um, I'm very concerned for you. And I went, oh, okay. So watch out for yourself. So Saturday rolls around, and usually when a team comes to play, they come in their shorts and T-shirts, and then they get themselves ready in the locker room, and they come out to the game. Well, they didn't show up till right before the game. They came off the bus fully suited up. We were out stretching in the middle of the field, and they come off the bus, and they, I was at, the front with a couple of other guys, and they came in and surrounded me and several other guys, the whole team. And they start jumping and yelling and pointing and screaming and saying all kinds of fun things they're going to do to me with incredible metaphors, I might add. Very creative. 
I was really, really impressed with how descriptive their thoughts were and their language was. And of course, I was the utmost pillar of self-control while all this was going on, right? So it is mayhem, complete mayhem. Coaches are running out onto the field. They're grabbing players, pulling them out. They are yelling and pointing, and they're coming. And I mean, we were like right in the middle of it, right? That's what Paul says is happening in this passage. People are desperately, desperately trying to construct some sort of confidence. Desperately trying to build themselves up. He would say, everyone is boasting. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. This is a reading from the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 3, verse 27 through 31. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh God, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we ask you to move in our midst. We ask you to open our eyes, give clarity to our minds, give and make it real to our heart. Jesus, we ask that you would shine on the page, for we know that all the Bible is ultimately about you. It all leads to you. It all flows from you, that you are the exalted one. You are the word of God. You are the word incarnate. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want you to look at verse 27. Then, what becomes of our boasting? Here's what I want you to notice right off the bat. Notice Paul assumes we're boasting. Because he's asking what becomes of it. He assumes we're already boasting. He assumes that everyone's trying to build themselves up. He assumes that every single human being is trying to construct a solid confidence. An intact self, right, or identity. That everyone is boasting. In fact, the Greek word for boasting, you know where it comes from? It comes from the Greco-Roman world of the battlefield. Every soldier, before they face the enemy, every soldier, in order to advance into an enemy, and any performer or athlete through the ages that competes, knows you need to have some confidence before you do it. You know you've got to build up some sort of self-courage, some sort of mental edge Right, to face the enemy, to advance against the enemy, to have some sense of being built up and solid and secure before you compete and before you perform, or you collapse, right? So soldiers in the ancient world, what did they do? You've watched some of the movies. Some of them are accurate. They paint their faces. They have really elaborate tattoos. Uh, They carried lucky symbols. What they would also do is they wanted to generate like ground-shaking noise. So they would come in with war drums and they would come in stomping and marching. They'd come in and they'd bang their shields. And the ground would just 
for the enemy, for the soldiers that are waiting for an advancing enemy to feel the ground shake beneath your feet is a pretty awesome thing, I would guess. They would sing inspiring chants and cadences, and of course, what is known throughout all ages, they, everyone resorted to the old fateful taunt, right? <laughs> the taunt is still alive and well today. In ancient Britain, before the Roman Empire, the tribes would psych out their enemies by painting their whole bodies blue and fighting naked. That would psych you out, right? That would psych me out. All these things were done to say in your heart and to shout to others, we're better than you. We're superior to you. You don't have a chance. We're going to destroy you. Whatever we boast in is what gives you and me confidence to get up that day and face whatever comes at us that day. Whatever you and I boast in is what ends up being the central support for the weight of our lives. So whatever that is, if it's solid and it's secure and it's stable, it can bear the weight of our life. It can support the weight of our life. But if it's not, you see what happens, right? One Roman scholar says, whatever you boast in is the thing of which you say, I am somebody because I have that. I can beat what comes against me today because I am this. What you boast in is what fundamentally defines you, this person says. It is where you draw your identity and self-worth. It's where you're able to say, I'm okay in the core of my being. So the question that Paul would, I mean, we've seen it now for 64 chapters. What specifically, though, do you boast in? Where do you derive your sense of constructing a confidence? What do you do to build yourself up? What do you do to circle another human being and say you're better than them? What do you do? Because we're all boasting in something. For some of us, you know, it could be getting male attention. That that builds you up. For others of us, it could be Degree, our degree or degrees. Could be the title before our name. It could be our bank account. It could be the fact that we feel more holy than other people because, man, I don't struggle with those sins that you struggle with. I don't commit those kind of sins that you commit, right? And this is all good stuff. It's good to have degrees. It's good to be achieving. It's good to work hard. It's good to be a good mom. But the issue is not those good things. The issue is whether we're trying to get our confidence out of them. It's whether we're trusting in them to build us up or trusting in them to generate a sense of this is who I am or trusting in them, as Paul would say, to justify your existence. Look at verses 21 through 26, those of you that have a Bible. That's what we just looked at last week. And remember what happened there? Paul just unpacked the wonder of the gospel. He just unpacked this incredible reality of justification being free to you and me. Remember this this legal, loving relationship with God. But he also showed that it didn't come, though it comes free to us, it does not come free to God. It cost God everything to give us this free justification. And that's where we saw those words redemption and propitiation, remember? 
Now, what is Paul doing in 27 through 31? You know what he's doing? Now he's after a specific application of justification in your life. He wants to, he wants to push in a change on the spot because of justification in your life and in my life. What change does he want to see? Look at verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? Answer, it is excluded. It is excluded. What Paul is after is for our boasting to end. What Paul is working for in this passage, he's saying, I, I want to see justification land in your life in such a way that you no longer seek to construct your own confidence. You stop doing that. It ends for you. He's after seeing all efforts to build ourselves up, all efforts to hold our own person together and try to keep it together. He wants all that kind of work, all that kind of effort, all that kind of boasting to end. Why? Because this is so key. Because justification ends all boasting. Because justification excludes boasting. So how does this happen? I mean, how does justification do that? How does justification come into your life in such a way that it ends your construction projects of confidence? That it comes into your works and your effort and your striving to try to build yourself up and maintain some sense of human flourishing and freedom and happiness. Justification comes in and it ends that kind of strain and that kind of pressure and that kind of living a life. How does it do that? Look at verse 27. First, let's see that that's what the passage is actually after, okay? Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? Now, there are three meanings of the law that you've got to watch out for. When you see the law, you've got to say, all right, is it talking about the Ten Commandments? Because it could be. Or is it talking about the Old Testament? The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, it could be that, option two. Or <clears throat> is it a defining principle or power? That's what's happening here. So fill it in. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of defining principle? What kind of defining principle excludes, ends, self-efforts, its self-justification? Paul gives two options. Do you see that? He gives the option of the principle or the defining principle of works or by the defining principle of faith. In other words, by constructing your own confidence, by building yourself up, by works of your own righteousness, or by trusting faith, trusting the principle of faith, the defining principle of faith, by trusting in a Jesus-constructed confidence, in a Jesus-worked righteousness, in a Jesus effort and victory in building up salvation and happiness and flourishing and freedom. 
by trusting in something Jesus does or by trusting in something we do. That's the contrast here. Two principles. Seeking to find some sense of identity, find some sense of I'm okay, find some sense of inner sanctity and security. Two ways to try to build a life and live a life. Two defining principles in life. The principle of works and the principle of faith. And Paul is after the only way to end the boasting is when you start trusting in the work of another. Before the Apostle Paul was a Christian, he tells us what his confidence was in. I'm so glad he does that, don't you? I mean, he writes this very, very personal letter in the Philippians, to the Philippians. And in it, he gets really, really personal, and he shares you his heart. He shares you where he put his hopes in, what all his dreams were in, how he built up his life, and what his confidence was in before he was a Christian, but he also gives you a window to what he struggled with as a Christian. It didn't just go away. His struggle, and and here are some of them. He said he boasted in his circumcision because it was on the eighth day. And all I kept thinking about is that's very interesting because there's only seven. But then he said he boasted in his tribal membership in Israel because he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Because Benjamin would lead them into war. Benjamin was known to have several kings. He said he boasted in being a Hebrew of Hebrews. I love this because Paul was a competitive Hebrew. He wanted to be better than all the rest. And when he looked around and he was working hard, his measuring stick was to be the best Hebrew in the pack. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, he said. He also went on to say he boasted in being a Pharisee of Pharisees. So now you go into the top echelon of people that are very, very serious about pursuing God. Very, very serious about the law. In fact, their zeal and their passion was directed towards the law. And he says, listen, I'm a competitive Pharisee. I'm better than all the rest. I'm the cream that rises to the top. Then he went on to say, I mean, this is brute honesty, isn't it? It's kind of refreshing to hear this kind of stuff. We don't talk like this. We probably should more often. He said he boasted in a zeal or passion for law keeping. This is fascinating in a particular context. So he's saying, I was so passionate. You could see my sincerity and my passion, my zeal. Everyone rallied around me. I had such a high level of zeal, I wouldn't tolerate anybody that had lower levels. I felt superior to those that had lower levels. In fact, I persecuted everyone that had a lower level. The church, he said. Because they had a low level of zeal and passion for law-keeping that would bless you and law-keeping that would save you, law-keeping that would construct your confidence. And then lastly, he said he, he boasted in his performance or the success as a law keeper. In other words, he said, I was blameless to the law. Do you, can, can you grasp that? He's saying, as to the law, I was perfect. As to the law, I am holy. What's fascinating is that later, Paul would actually say he's the chief of sinners. But here he is saying, I am the holiest person I know. And I'm the holiest person that anyone else knew. I am a holy man. When he became a Christian and he matured as a Christian, you know what he said? When he looked around and someone would come up and say, Paul, stick a mic in his face. 
and said, hey, man, you know, who's the worst sinner you know? Who's the most sinful person you know? Without blinking an eye, I'd say me. The most sinful person I know is me. Not my spouse, not my child, not my neighbor, not so-and-so in the church, not so-and-so at work. The most sinful person I know is me. That's holiness. If you want a measure of holiness right away, if you're able to genuinely say that, you are a holy person. If you're not, there's the work that needs to go on in your life. I don't know why we went there, but we did. Here we go. Then at the end of this list of his boasts, you know what he says? At the end of this letter, he lists all these boasts. He lists all these ways he has tried to save himself. All these ways he's tried to construct some confidence in his life. And then he says, I look at them all and I count them as dog do. He uses a different word, but we're too polite to use it. He says, I put no confidence in self-constructed confidence. I don't need it anymore. Why, Paul, why don't you need it anymore? In Philippians, you know what he says? That I might gain Christ. In Romans, you know what he says? Verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. For we hold, he says, we hold that there's only one way to be justified. There's only one way to find yourself. There's only one way to be a worthy person. There's only one way to be righteous. There's only one way to be acceptable. There's only one way to have confidence that can support the weight of your life. Justification is freely received in Christ by faith, never achieved by you and me by works. And faith the principle of faith gets this, is what he's saying. Remember, what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded by what kind of defining principle? By the defining principle of works? No, but by the defining principle of faith. Faith gets that. That's what he's saying. He's saying faith says, I bring nothing but my need for Jesus and his work. Faith says, I, I have empty hands that need to be filled by Jesus and his work. I bring nothing. In fact, I need to transfer. Faith says, I'm going to transfer all my trust and all my hope and all my dreams out of my self-justifying hands into Jesus' justifying hands. I'm transferring all trust to him and away from me. How does that work? How does that work practically? Here's how it works. Let's say you realize you boast in something. Let's say you realize you boast in your performance. As a Christian, let's say, before God. It's a way, when you perform certain ways, if you have quiet times, pray, if your spiritual disciplines are on tact, you feel closer to God, you feel more connected to God, you feel like he loves you more. So when you're not able to have one that day, your day's ruined. Let's say something like that happens. Or let's say that you start realizing uh, as a musician or an athlete or a doctor or professor, you have these sets of standards of performance that when you meet them, you feel good about yourself, you feel confident. When they're threatened or you don't, you don't feel confident. 
Let's say you find that you're trusting in some area of performance to construct your confidence. What do you do? What does faith say to you? What's the principle of faith say? First of all, we need to realize hardly ever do we just wake up to something like that. Hardly ever, when things are going well, do I say, man, I trust too much in my success and in my performance as a preacher and a teacher. But a friend of mine used to say, you know what, I had a lousy sermon today because Jesus is continually trying to show me that I need a lousy sermon to know I can't be justified by my sermon. It's when you blow it. It's when you, you mess up. It's when that area might even go away. You might lose it. That you start realizing, oh my, your confidence is rocked. The weight of your life falls in. Your sense of human flourishing is now spinning inside out and upside down. That's when you know. So that's usually how it happens. Pain, pain is a sanctifying thing in God's hands. So let's say now, again, not on a sunny day, but usually on a cloudy day, you realize this. What are you going to do? Here's what you do. Faith says to your performance. So you find it. You've identified it. You know what it is now. Faith says, you can't justify me. I don't need you. You can't construct my confidence. And then faith turns away from this area of performance and says, Jesus, you are my perfect performance. You are perfection itself for me. You are my confidence. It's your work. You're my freedom and my flourishing. You give me what I'm looking for. Help me trust in you. Help me move my trust away from my performance and onto your performance to define me, to give me confidence to find myself and have an intact identity, right? Now, let's say that, um, you know, you're not the performance type. Let's say you're more the free spirit type, right? You're the one that likes self-freedom and self-discovery, and you're kind of anti-law, and you're kind of anti-authority and anti-control. How do you know if you're that? Do you, does anyone like to be controlled, first of all? No, no one likes to be controlled, but you have like this obsession with seeking out any sort of control anywhere it might be found. Are you trying to control me? Don't give me that law. 55, I go 70, right? You know who you are. You know who you are, right? So you're that person. That tends to be your tendency. And you are trying to construct your confidence by being a free spirit. By, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find who I am by discovering it myself, right? I'm going to build my life up by me finding my own way and whatever I think that way is. Let's say that's you. What does faith say to you when you start realizing that? Faith says to personal self-discovery and to a free spirit, you can't justify me. You can't construct human freedom. I don't need you. Jesus, you are human freedom. On earth, you lived the perfect human flourishing life. Not for yourself, 
but for me so I can have it. I need your righteousness to give me self-worth, to give me self-discovery, to give me life. Help me trust you. That's how it works. It's not a light switch. It's a relationship. And it's not one aha. It's multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of ahas for the rest of your life. When believing replaces boasting, you know what happens to boasting? It ends. When believing moves in, boasting is cast out. And when believing moves in, comfort happens. Confidence happens. Courage happens. All right, how am I doing on time? We're going to do it. All right. There's one barrier. If you look at verse 31, look at verse 31. When I first read this and I first was studying this, I couldn't figure out why this is here. It just seemed to come out of left field, right field. It came out of nowhere. Space. I don't know. I couldn't figure out. Do we then overthrow the law by this principle of faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law by this principle of faith. And I kept thinking, why does he bring that up here? I mean, it doesn't make sense. We're just trying to figure out how you practically end boasting by justification through the principle of faith. So why does he bring up the law here? I couldn't, I couldn't do it, but then it clicked. It really clicked. Because the barrier to the principle of faith working in your life, faith will not work in your life. You will not see justification work in your life if you overthrow the law in your life. Wow. Now, you all are thinking the exact wrong thing, so that's why we're going to figure this one out together. Are you ready? What does it mean to overthrow the law? And what does it mean to uphold the law? If we answer those, we're going to answer how, how the law being overthrown is a barrier to you growing in justification and ending your boasting and self-justification. Fair enough? Okay, so let's look at this. Don't miss what Paul is saying. On the contrary, we uphold the law by this principle of faith. Paul is saying the principle of faith upholds the law. The principle of works overthrows it. This is huge. What does that mean? It means this. Faith upholds the law because faith trusts in the only one who upheld the law perfectly. You know what the penalty, you know what the righteous, the righteous penalty for law-breaking is? Death. Jesus, in his death, pays the righteous, holy penalty for breaking the law, thereby upholding the law. So faith trusts in Jesus' death as the law-breaking death debt in its place, thereby upholding the law. Do you see that? Faith is trusting in what somebody else did to uphold the law by taking the penalty for it. The law is upheld. Negatively, positively, I'm almost done, Ty. Positively, 
The law demands perfect obedience. In other words, to be a confident person, you have to have perfection. To be someone that is solid in their self, they have to be perfect. You have to be fully righteous. You have to be the all-glorious, human-flourishing person. The best person that ever lived. The perfect person that ever lived. In your character, in your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds. To have that kind of righteousness is to be an okay person. It's to be justified. It's to be accepted. It's to have security. It's to never fear doom or condemnation. And no one has that but Jesus. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the law. He kept the law perfectly and established righteousness, established justification. And faith says, I trust him to do that for me, thereby upholding the law in your life. You are now a law keeper in faith's eyes and in God's eyes because Jesus' law keeping is yours. There's no death, debt, because he paid it. So faith is the only thing that upholds the law. And only when you, by faith and justification, see that Jesus upheld the law in his death for you and the law in his perfect life for you, only then and only then can you ever love the law. Otherwise, you will always be scared of it. It will always terrorize you. You will always overthrow it, which leads us to the second part. When Jesus was talking about upholding the law, you know what he said? He said, look, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. That's how the law is upheld. Jesus upholds it. Faith, as a principle, upholds the law because it trusts in Jesus as the only one that upheld it. Okay, I don't know how many times I can say it, 50 different times. But do you get it? Get that idea? All right. So how does someone overthrow the law? You know how you overthrow the law? By using the law to construct a closeness to God. By using the law as a barometric measuring stick for you feeling loved by God or blessed by God. By using the law, by doing good and living a good life, you think you're going to get good karma and you're going to get it. It's going to come around, the boomerang effect. You deserve to have pleasant, comfortable situations and circumstances in a life. Why does, this, why does this overthrow the law? Because when we trust in a self-constructed confidence, when we use the law to give us confidence with God, confidence with ourselves, confidence with other people, we end up, it's easier to keep the law if we change it. So we overthrow the law. We limit the law. We make it keepable. And in doing so, we overthrow the law. It goes like this. See, the law demands that you and I be a generous person. It doesn't just, well, let's go this way. The law demands that you and I be a generous person. That means that, that we, in our being, in our character, in our conduct, in our actions, we are self-giving, that we are self-giving to an extent that we will diminish so that someone else in our giving is filled up. So by self-giving to someone else, being a generous giving person, you're giving of yourself, you're diminishing yourself, you're extinguishing yourself so that someone else is filled, someone else is full, someone else is complete, someone else who is lacking is no longer lacking. So it might mean late night conversations. It might mean a lot of emotional, relational energy. It might mean you get diminished in areas like money and time and talents and physical energy. 
because you're a generous person. It might mean that you go without. It might mean that you're sacrificially giving. But here's what we do. We can't keep that. We know we can't keep that. So what do we do? We change it. And we say the law of generosity or the law of giving is giving 10% of your tithes to God. And maybe some offerings if you can throw in a little more. We overthrow the law. The law says, and it demands, that we be a loyal, loving spouse before marriage and during marriage. Doesn't matter whether you're single, doesn't matter whether you're a teenager. The law says you are to be a loyal, loving spouse your whole life, even if you don't get married. But we overthrow the law. We do things like, well, I'm single. I'm not married, so it doesn't apply to me right there. And then we say things like, it's impossible to be sexually pure in a sexually overdosed culture that we live in. We say things like, I'm single and I'm a teenager and you've got to be kidding me. You know the hormones that are raging in me right now? I'm going to be sexually pure? Mm. Right? Or we talk about someone who's married and they say something like, well, we're only friends. I'm only friends with that person. We're just close friends. Maybe there was a little emotional attraction at one time or whatever, but... The law says love your neighbor as yourself. We say no alcohol. Go to church. The law says love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We say, I don't know, you know, don't eat peanuts on Thursdays. I don't know. Fast for something. Give up something, right? Do you see how we overthrow the law? We overthrow the law when we try to make it keepable. Only Jesus kept it. Faith alone upholds it. And only when you trust in justification are you ever free to now love the beauty and the wonder of the law. Because it talks about human flourishing. And you want to flourish. You want to love God. You want to love people, which summarize the law. So living by faith in justification frees you to love the law, not fear it or try to change it, thereby overthrowing it. It frees you to love genuinely. You're not judgmental. You're not superior to anyone because you know that you're the most sinful person you know, and it's all based on the righteousness of another person. And so that frees you from measuring and competing that way. You're free to live boldly because when you fail and you see your flaws and you see your imperfections, it doesn't crush you because it's not about your performance and it's not about your efforts. It's about the righteousness of another. So you're always bold. You're always courageous in him, in him. So believe, believe, believe to replace your boasting.